This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Chuck McClister, board president of HopeWorks in Camden. HopeWorks uses education, technology, and entrepreneurship to help youth in Camden secure pathways to a brighter future. Chuck is also the chief operating officer of Bancroft, a leading regional nonprofit serving children and adults with autism, developmental disabilities, and acquired brain injuries. Chuck has earned undergraduate and graduate degrees in psychology from Penn State, as well as an MBA from Villanova University. Before joining Bancroft, he served as vice president of the Northern Recovery Division of CRC Health Group and also as the chief executive officer of Fairmont Behavioral Health System. Chuck is also a certified alcohol and drug counselor and a certified clinical supervisor. Chuck, it's really a pleasure to have you with us today on Innovate Podcast. Thank you, David. I'm happy to be talking to you. Many of our listeners are young social entrepreneurs and people studying leadership in, in business and in the nonprofit sector. And one of the things we always begin with is just a little about your early life and your background, the first part of your story, really, and really focusing in on the question of whether there were relationships or experiences in your youth or early life that shape your development and led to, to your career choices and to your success. If you could tell us a little bit about that, it would be great. Yeah, thank you. I, um, I've been in human services in one format or another for probably 25 years, and uh, I studied psychology, as you mentioned, uh, as, a, as an undergrad at Penn State, and ha- had always been called to um, that discipline, um, I, you know, just comfortable in relationships, interested in people, uh, and so I think that was, that was never a, um, a question that I wanted to be in the, in, in the, in the Kind of realm of helping helping people uh, and I, I certainly graduated uh, with my bachelor's degree in psychology wanting to save the world one person at a time and uh, you know and I, I always saw myself on a track uh, towards um, you know, a doctorate level degree uh, counseling uh, leadership in uh, you know this, this area and and I really stayed on that track from an education perspective for probably half my career um, but my early experiences, uh, you know, my first my first job was with a nonprofit that worked with at-risk youth and 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 kids who were actually uh, um, uh, placed out of the home for long periods of time because of uh, criminal activity and, and drug use. Uh, and what I what I had the knack for, in addition to wanting to work with uh, those young men and, and uh, the team, was a knack for um, helping others be in position to uh, to work with with uh, with youth and work with people and I found that I really love the organizational development component uh, of the work uh, as much if not more as the actual uh, role as a practitioner um, and so I spent probably the first half of my career in uh, in two nonprofit organizations uh, advancing as a supervisor you know finding ways to both practice counseling as well as position others for it and you know, more and more as my career advanced, um, I realized that the, the idea of, of getting a doctorate and hanging up a shingle, uh, having a private practice was 
was less interesting to me than being able to help organizations do what they say they do, um, which is always a struggle for human service organizations to have the mission actually match the activities that occur uh, where the person is served. Uh, and, and so my, my career has taken a bit of a different turn in terms of the leadership. And as an example, uh, I, I opted for an MBA rather than to go get a PhD in counseling because I thought it would serve me better given what I had uh, had seen the knack, uh, the knack for in my career. Uh, so first job was with uh, uh, kids. Uh, second job was with kids and adults and addictions. Uh, and I spent the first half of my year really in, in the nonprofit sector and then the middle of my career um, with for-profit human services and, and behavioral health care. Uh, and so there's that's also an interesting part of, of um, my transition. So that experience in the for-profit is is Fairmont Behavioral Health. Is that a is that a for-profit or a nonprofit? That's a for-profit organization um, owned by UHS, which is a publicly traded company, very large healthcare organization. Yep. Yeah. So that that was uh, sounded like a, a, a very big responsibility. Probably uh, was that your first opportunity to really lead a whole organization? It was. Um, I you know it's interesting that my first job was with a nonprofit company that later turned into, was acquired and was a for-profit company. And so the job before Fairmont was I returned to the same company, but with a different uh, tax status, essentially. And and so the way that the um, priorities and the activities changed um, had something to do with that, but it also had something to do with the fact that I was you know, providing counseling in the first job. And then when I returned, I was a, a leader of a division. Um, but it's in, you know the, the the experience and and the other thing that's noteworthy with that experience is that the company was positioning itself for acquisition and sale, again, uh-huh. and, and that really changes the priorities uh, drastically for a, a focus on short term rather than long term, um, and, you know, and and having you know a few more years after that, you know, I I, I believe that um, in human services. You know the debate around whether there's a merit between you know, the the for-profit versus non-profit activity. Uh, is it okay for for-profit companies to do human services and healthcare work? I, I think it has more to do with the leadership and the leadership's ability to manage the circumstances. Um, and you know, in the long run, uh, good quality care and good conditions for employees produce all kinds of good outcomes, including financial stability. And uh, you know the, uh, the the experience of being a part of a large organization that was positioning for a sale and learning from that in in many good ways, but also you know what doesn't work. Um, I think has really informed the steps I took afterwards. So when I when I joined Fairmount and led the it's it's the largest freestanding psychiatric hospital in the Philadelphia region. Uh, it was with a you know, publicly traded company, but it was also doing exactly the kind of work that I wanted to do with great deal of autonomy that the company had provided me. Um, still, that was the period of time when I realized that I wanted to continue to um, be involved in the nonprofit sector. And, and that's where I sought out, um, you know, volunteer opportunities that led me to both uh, HopeWorks and eventually a board member and to Bancroft and eventually a board member and now an employee. 
Fascinating. I have to ask you because that's such an unusual opportunity. I, I don't come across many people who've been on both sides of that, both in the for-profit sector and the nonprofit sector, and particularly in a leadership role. And there is uh, uh, there are obviously uh, some potential big differences in the culture and the organizational yes. structure. I wonder if you could share a few reflections on having been in both environments are on on how they're different and and what are the strengths and weaknesses in each in each setting? Yeah, so I, I was with uh, Cornell Companies, which was later acquired by Geo Group, and, and that was largely a corrections organization. That and I'm, I worked in the um, the youth uh, services division, so it was a little bit of a different culture than the overall company. And they were positioning for sale. Uh, and then I worked for CRC Health Group um, recently, which was just acquired by another larger for-profit organization. So they were positioning for a sale. And that experience was very, very different than working for UHS at Fairmount, which was a very long, long-term, long stable company, growth objectives. Uh, and uh, at the time that I was there, you know, afforded the uh, CEOs uh, a great deal of autonomy to kind of run they were run their units and and um, and, and be creative. So, uh, you know, within the space of you know the for-profit sector, there's I think different circumstances and different personalities for organizations. I, you know, and in, that's true in the nonprofit world too. So there are nonprofits that have difficulty making payroll, and I, I firmly believe that you know nonprofit leaders have to attend to the financial stability of their organization as much as uh, maybe maybe more so than the uh, their for-profit counterparts at the end of the day you have to be sustainable and you know where I've seen some misalignment is in you know, the circumstance that is short-term focused when the moment comes where you have to make a decision between kind of long-term quality efforts versus short-term financial uh, gains. I, I think the circumstances can sometimes drive the situation uh, one direction or another. Uh, I haven't seen that, you know, as a volunteer in the nonprofit world or certainly at, at Bancroft as, a, as an employee. Right. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. Um, another fascinating question to me would be your sense of how the business models in those organizations have evolved during your career. Have you seen, you know, sort of with uh, the introduction of managed care and then also I would say the um, cycles of government funding in, in which there is sometimes, uh, you know, feast and sometimes famine. Sure. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. um, and now with Obamacare and the revolution in the insurance world and bringing all these people into the marketplace that weren't there before. Do you have any sense of of uh, of how those business models are evolving? I know that's like a that's like a 30,000 foot question, but no, it's a good you're one. in a unique position to talk about it, I think. I, I think that when you know when, I, when I'm around the table in any of these behavioral health organizations, the you know the model uh, invariably gets uh, moves the discussion towards access to care. So, uh, in in some you know environments, in some jurisdictions, in some types of services, access is easier for the consumer than in others. Um, and I, I you know. It, the model is, is somewhat driven by the organization's flexibility and nimbleness related to uh, being usable, you know, and uh, the, you know, the, the, the for-profit entities tended to be very focused on easy to use uh, uh, 
front door access, um, kind of high velocity throughput, and all those those business terms don't seem to match very well for uh, you know a person seeking seeking help for a behavioral health issue. Right. It, when they are able to access the bed or the services, you know, it's it's very beneficial to them. And conversely, you know, and and this does have something to do with jurisdiction. So different states have different you know systems, but uh, in, in nonprofit access is not always as nimble as it can be, and 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 and, and you know uh, nonprofits that have been around for a long time and have done the same work for many many years have, in my judgment, some difficulty adjusting, especially when it comes to their ability to be accessed by uh, new types of consumers or in different ways. Um, and so, you know, if you can, I like to think that I'm able to combine sort of the thinking around making ourselves easy to use from that for-profit world with, you know, a very high quality product in the nonprofit world that people have easier and better access to and in different ways. I mean, you know, the, the, the big, I, I think one of the things that will, will change the way the model looks over time as a result of, of um, the Affordable Care Act is uh, flexibility flexibility in um, you know what types of services you provide and, and, and if you provide them vertically or if you partner but also how quickly you can meet the needs of an individual and and make sure that you know that uh, persons who are seeking treatment are not um, waiting long periods of time or, or wallowing in emergency rooms I think that will define the successful providers moving forward yeah, that's a really terrific observation. I, I think that one of the things that I've reflected on myself over the years is that, um, you know, people sort of imagine that rationing of, of, a, of a resource only happens inside a government program. But the reality is that the market rations things very effectively just using different different methods, mainly the ability to pay. Yeah, it <laughs> and, does. Um, so there is uh, rationing going on in both systems, but we have um, – we have is just a fascinating and very complex evolution of the interplay between those two things, and uh, it will be interesting to watch it unfold. I'm, I'm mindful of our time, and and one of the things I really wanted to get a chance to talk with you about is your, uh, you know, your leadership uh, at HopeWorks, and um, and particularly its its work in Camden. And many of our listeners, we have listeners in all different parts of the world, actually, and, and many of our listeners will not be familiar with uh, necessarily the uh, situation in Camden. So I wonder if we could come at HopeWorks through that lens and have you talk a little bit about the kinds of challenges that youth are facing in Camden today and, and maybe how that has developed over the years. I, I know you have some consciousness of, of the yeah. community there. Yeah, um, that's, that's a great way to approach it. Uh, this could be said for any environment, but you know, Camden is historically one of the most impoverished um, communities, urban communities. It's, it's uh, you know, uh, can be characterized as, as violent in terms of the number of homicides that happen and assaults that happen each year. And um, I, I, I start off with that and run the risk of you know, kind of bashing the community, which is certainly not helpful and, and not a part of what HopeWorks does or, or wants to, wants to how, how we want to be seen. Um, what I love about what HopeWorks does is that it has a very focused approach to helping young men and women uh, change their futures based on kind of knowing their histories. Um, the byproduct of poverty and violence 
is trauma. And so you, you can safely say that a person who grows up in a community that has uh, a lot of poverty and violence is a traumatized person. And what we learned, and, and you know, Hope Works is celebrating its 15-year anniversary this year, uh, what we've learned over that time, uh, you know, both the board and the, and the leadership together, uh, is that people who are traumatized uh, experience and perceive uh, opportunities very differently than the people who are free from that. And there are um, very deep-rooted and natural barriers to uh, accessing opportunities because of that interpretation. And it's, it's very easy for a person who hasn't had those experiences to, to, uh, to, to take a young, a young man or woman who is you know, uh, not showing up on time for the internship that was provided to them or you know, not being consistent with their attendance or their responsibilities and to point the finger and say, you know, what's wrong with you and why have you, why are you acting irresponsibly? But in fact, it's pretty typical for a traumatized person to not engage in the same manner uh, until they've been able to process some of those events. And sometimes that processing can be, you know, in a paraprofessional manner with, with, with um, you know, just uh, a trusting relationship with the, with the right people and, and, and the right set of questions. Sometimes it requires, you know, uh, professional help to do that. Uh, but once that happens, uh, you know, the, the individual is really able to take advantage of the opportunities. So we started out as, you know, a, a, an organization that was probably looked like a lot of other outreach organizations that focused on you know, education and vocation and, and job opportunities and, uh, you know, some low-level counseling. But what we learned was our real offering was the ability to provide hope for people who are traumatized so that they can plot out their own path. That's terrific. And so is that does that mean in in my experience uh, a lot of that has to do with really the relationship that's built between the agency and the and the client and how they perceive that and um I do think it's interesting that many when you're working with vulnerable uh, populations, I think people often don't appreciate how fragile um, that relationship is and how easy it is for somebody to be dissuaded, you know, um, and hope is sort of the reverse of that where people maintain their sense of, 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 of the possibility of a positive outcome from this interaction. And I'm wondering about I'm wondering about how you if you could talk about that, what's different, what's the special approach to nurturing that relationship so that it, it models something that maybe um, is not uh, hasn't been in the repertoire of the person that you're dealing with before that. So um, it's a great question. It, obviously it takes the right people and the right mindset, but that's absolutely not enough because you know, the nonprofits that work with uh, at-risk youth in, in urban communities and other communities are full of very well-intended and, and very talented people. The organization has to make a commitment and take an approach that is very different than what you would traditionally do uh, in an organization that, that wasn't working with traumatized uh, persons. And it has a lot to do with, you know, changing the way you approach a problem, the way you ask a question. So person who's not showing up on time or is not um, meeting their attendance requirements, traditionally, you would say, hey, let me tell, talk to you about that. You know, that's unacceptable. Uh, how can I help? If it happens again, you know, we're going to have to talk again, and eventually we're going to have to ask you to leave. And that's the what's wrong with you approach. You know, get your act together. Take care of your responsibilities versus uh, an organization that would ask the question, it's unlike you 
to not be on time or to not engage in your responsibilities because I know what you really want because you told me that. What has happened to you? So it's shifting the question organization from what's wrong with you to what has happened to you and allowing the individual to kind of take responsibility for their history, but then also make the changes they need to without it being a kind of a punitive conversation. And uh, HopeWorks adopt, has adopted a you know, model that's kind of uh, in this wheelhouse and, and uh, it's the, the, the sanctuary model of, of um, you know, for, for, for it's traditionally used in um, institutions and, and organizations like that, but HopeWorks has used it to reframe the way we approach problems with youth. Uh, San, Sandy Bloom, the founder, one of the co-founders of uh, Sanctuary is one of our board members and uh, it was a great way to, to make organizational changes that produced this, this different context for the young men and women. That's a terrific example. And uh, yeah, I think that's so true that if you, the messaging and the framing of, of these interactions is, is really can make all the difference in the world. Um, This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and to Charles McLister, board president of HopeWorks in Camden and chief operating officer of Bancroft. It sounds like you do a lot of work on culture, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how um, this is sort of segueing into another uh, thing that I actually want to talk about later, but it's such an important leadership function, is how you approach developing a culture within an organization, particularly in terms of, um, you know, staff selection and how the board interacts with the staff. Could you talk about that? Yeah. It sounds like it's a critical part of what you do there. Yeah, you know, I I believe that uh, human service organizations, behavioral healthcare organizations, probably healthcare organizations are, you know, almost uh, kind of living organisms uh, with, with their own ability to kind of direct their growth and development. But there's also some defaults that are not necessarily good and uh, you know the the issues that a, a young man or woman would bring to uh, a place like HopeWorks or, or another human services agency are uh, disruptive they're they're private they're sometimes aggressive and violent they're traumatic and it's it's impossible for the folks who work with uh, persons who suffer from those issues to not not, not just be affected by them from a humanitarian standpoint, but to be um, to, to adopt some of those issues themselves. And there's there's time and again you see a kind of a parallel process, and this is something that you know, sanctuary um, attends to very directly. But a parallel process between the caregivers and the care receivers. And so, uh, if you take that, if you keep that in mind, you know, one of my um, 
pretty firmly rooted beliefs about human services agencies and their culture is that the hardest thing for any leader to do is to make sure that the agency and its members do what they say they do. And, and when people ask me, you know, what's your what's on your job description? I have plenty of bullets, but the one thing that comes to mind is that my job is to shrink the distance between what we say we do and what we actually do. And I, I think that human service human services leaders are always, you know, on the task of shrinking the distance. And you'll, it'll never be identical because there's going to be you know, too many variables and, and, and we're dealing with human beings on both sides of the equation. But the closer you are to doing it the way you say you do it, uh, the, the better the outcomes will be for those youth. And so for me, I recruit for people who they kind of fit that culture. And, you know, we hire, we hire to, to culture, we train to skill. And you, you, can, you can change um, the way a person, uh, you know, uh, delivers their, uh, their professional craft. Uh, you can improve that. You can develop it. But it's very difficult to find people who, you know, uh, kind of have the mindset and change that from one to another place. And, and generally, you know, HopeWorks went through this transformation when it realized, uh, you know, and Jeff uh, put off the, the, the executive director who's just uh, just now retiring this year, was a great leader in this. Uh, when he realized that, it, that we would not be able to engage the young men and women in, until the, 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 the staff and the culture changed to be. Um, more accommodating of, of this, 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 this trauma variable. And it resulted in, you know, a turnover of the, of the, of the employees, uh, because not, not, not in a way that was uh, disruptive or involuntary, but it wasn't for everybody. It's difficult to change your mindset. And so oftentimes when an organization has to go through a cultural change, you find that people will kind of tap out and move on. And sometimes they're able to do it in a, in a way differently and better in another environment than the one that they would be started in. Uh, but there, but there's, there's that upheaval that is somewhat natural, but you know, it can be scary. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating process. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm putting in the parking lot a question I want to ask you later about that. Cause I think what you just said is really fascinating about that, that process of closing the gap between, um, you know, vision and, and, and reality. And, uh, and I associate that with the, with uh, also the idea of integrity, you know, having integrity and and and, and credibility really um, in your market space. But um, I want to come back and 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 touch on that just a, in a few minutes when we shift the conversation to leadership. But um, I'd like to get a, get a sense. Uh, maybe I can uh, prime it a little bit, but then have you just talk a little bit about the substance of some of the work there. My understanding is that um, there's uh, some part of this work which is um, really building that container and that sanctuary and that and that comes under the acronym CRIB, Community Responding in Belief. Um, and then there are some really innovative programs in terms of my understanding you have a whole um, set of businesses there. We actually are engaging youth in developing websites and working with Salesforce and GIS systems and then some educational programs as well that are that are uh, helping kids find that pathway, you know, through high school to college. So maybe if you could just talk a little bit, flesh a little bit of that out for us, um, uh, that would be great. Yeah, you know, um, Jeff and the folks who have been at HopeWorks either, you know, the first half of the 15 years or the latter latter half have always had kind of an entre entrepreneurial spirit when it comes to, you know, 
the, the businesses, which which are a small part of you know, how HopeWorks sustains itself, but are a big part of the platform by which people are able to find opportunities. Uh, you know, it, we have to be interesting to young people. It has to be something that is usable. And so web design, Salesforce, uh, GIS mapping, these are you know, things that you wouldn't no- normally get for, uh, from a typical outreach uh, provider. And they may be three, four different things in, in the next five years, the next 10 years, because you know, again, what we've learned is that if a person's unable to engage because they're weighted down by their history, then it doesn't matter how interesting or innovative you are, um, they're, they're gonna have difficulty um, taking advantage of opportunities. But you know, we also nod to the notion that it has to be something that's fun and interesting and useful to a person. So we celebrate the um, person who gets an internship uh, in, in with Salesforce or you know, with a hospital or with uh, you know, some kind of tech company. And we have lots of tech volunteers from, you know, from throughout the region who, who, uh, uh, who are really interesting people to begin with, but also uh, have an offering to youth that um, you know, brings the whole equation together. Helping someone to engage and then having something for, interesting for them to engage with uh, you know, provides, I think, the, the, the full picture for, for some change. Can you give us a sense of the scope of this work now? Um, how many youth uh, do you touch there through those programs, and um, what's uh, what's the staffing levels and that sort of thing? Um, you know, uh, as the board chair, I I would try to stay out of the um, the, the operations, and and so with a grain of salt, you know, let me take my best shot at the uh, the numbers. But you know, I, we're we're probably serving. Uh, up to 100 or more kids, uh, young men and women, and they can be in their low 20s, late teens, uh, to, you know, every 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 day kind of cycling through one component of the program or another. We're certainly in a position right now where we're a little capacity strained uh, uh, based just on our physical physical plant location. Uh, the, the staff team is, is uh, I think, around uh, 15 uh, uh, employees or so, but again, Supplemented by a large number of volunteers, that really uh, we couldn't we couldn't run HopeWorks without those volunteers. Uh, again, don't hold me to the exact numbers, but uh, that's that's the scope at this point. No, that's very that's very helpful to understand, and I really would like to encourage our listeners to uh, go to the website, you know, HopeWorks.org, and uh, see some of this amazing uh, work that's going on and make a contribution to it because um, it's really uh, terrifically important. Uh, I love. I just love programs like this. Uh, I do some of this work in my own um, work life when I'm not doing these interviews. And um, these organizations are just so um, inspiring to be with. Uh, I, I wonder, um, I'm sure that if we were good to, would go to the website, there are also uh, good some good stories of uh, actual individuals, and I would I did see a YouTube video which had uh, some really terrific uh, uh, pictures and images, and 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 the students talking um, about their their work. And perhaps at some point we can in the future get I guess it's Father Jeff maybe get him on uh, on an interview, and uh, he can even uh, take us more into the into the daily work. I wanted I wanted to switch uh, gears a little bit because you are the chief op- operating officer of Bancroft, which is also another uh, huge, um, 
hugely impactful organization um, and in a slightly different venue. Could you tell us a little bit about the scope of your um, engagement there uh, and what, what your role there is at, uh, at Bancroft? Sure. Bancroft has um, uh, been around for over 130 years, uh, starting as a school um, you know, in, uh, uh, a long time ago in Haddonfield. Uh, today, we are the largest provider of, uh, of services for um, people with severe autism and developmental disabilities, uh, acquired brain injuries and neurological disorders uh, in the state of New Jersey, and we have a, a, a small footprint in Pennsylvania and Delaware. Uh, we have about uh, 2,000 employees, and on a daily basis, we, we serve about uh, 1,500 uh, persons and their families. So it's a... It's a, a, a Good size organization. Uh, we're growing. You know, uh, we uh, we are uh, positioning ourselves over the last year to really you know take advantage of the opportunities to be more accessible and in different ways. And so we've got a long history of residential services and school services for special education, uh, and we, we will always kind of have that core. Uh, list of services, but we also have some core competencies like our ability to do behavioral interventions during a crisis, our ability to do skill building, um, behavioral work with folks over a long period of time, and you know, treatment for uh, brain injuries and rehabilitation. We have the ability to do these core competencies in other ways, in the outpatient setting, in an ambulatory way, in the home, in 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 ways that we know that families and consumers you know need and. Uh, and, and which, you know, provide more options, which is always good, I think, in this space. So uh, we're a, an old organization with a great reputation that is working towards uh, kind of reimagining the way we, we do what we do. And it's, it's a, a very fun, fun year. I'm really uh, impressed with the scope of work there um, at Bancroft and particularly the integration of, um, you know, services. It sounds like you're doing some really innovative work with people who have brain injuries, which must be a very uh, rewarding um, thing and interesting to add that into uh, a portfolio of special ed and autism. Is that unusual to to uh, have? Uh, because obviously there's they're related, but in the sense of the um, kind of challenges that the person faces, but uh, um, the the cause of the problem being, you know, completely different in the person that has an acquired brain injury versus somebody with autism. Um, it's uh, it's it, it, what do you see being the most cutting edge work in that space today? I'm curious about that. You know, all of our core services have to do with neurology and the. Um, resulting behaviors and, and kind of uh, physical, emotional, or mental conditions that come from that. Um, I think being able to provide services in, in new ways and new places is, you know, it's, it's hard for organizations that have done something one way for a long time to make that shift. It requires a different kind of thinking. It requires different resources. Uh, if you're a large organization, it requires the ability to um, take advantage of opportunities of scale and you know most most organizations will grow in exactly the same format and model that they started with which is like kind of unit-based replication of each unit until it's larger and larger and actually that that really i think can erode effectiveness over time because you have to change how you resource uh the model so so we want to be an organization and our organization i think 
uh, today that that is flexible and more responsive. Uh, and and in, the, in the brain injury, in the acquired brain injury space, um, you know the 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 kind of the ability for a person to stay in a in a hospital setting or an inpatient setting is it's just less available. And so those folks need to be able to access uh, a good portion of their services now in the community with the same level of competence and excellence that they would have come to, to come to expect in a, in a hospital setting. And I think that's where we um, show up very, very strong. Uh, we have a we're part of a pilot program for veterans, and you know we're very committed to being able to work with vets who uh, have have acquired brain injuries. It's you know, going back to one of your earlier comments or questions. Uh, I don't know if it's unusual to combine the treatment for uh, neurological disorders and brain and acquired brain injury with uh, with working with other neurological issues. But you know what's what's really I think difficult for folks in that situation is that there's a context of what it used to be like. And so emotionally, it's very difficult for a person who was a, an executive or a teacher or a police officer uh, who you know was very athletic and, and had lots of great hobbies and could uh, could do so many things to, to have their, their lifestyle change so significantly because of a brain injury or because of a stroke. And, and the emotions that go along with that are very different than a person who was you know born with a developmental disability or has had uh, severe autism all of their life. Uh, no less compelling, but very different in terms of. Right. I have. I, I have to um, confess. I have my oldest. My second uh, oldest son is a is uh, uh, pretty well down the autism spectrum. Uh, has a lot of needs and. Um, but one of the things we always say about him is he's incredibly joyful because he has no he has no sense of you know having been any other way. So he's able to approach his life with a lot of joy. But I can just imagine um, the pain of loss that someone must feel when they acquire an injury like that and have a memory of, of what their capacity used to be. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, again, very, very important work. Mindful of our time, again, that we're, we're coming actually to the end of our interview, and I wanted to make sure we give a chance uh, to talk about leadership and entrepreneurship. Um, in the context of innovation, I know that uh, a lot of our listeners are interested in those themes. And uh, so I wanted to start by asking you whether you had any uh, uh, mentors or uh, there were, if there are any um, writers or theorists in leadership and management that you subscribe to or that you think are particularly helpful. We always like to get that out into the conversation as a, a potential lead for, for, for uh, someone who's developing their skills. You know, um, I, I would hate to leave uh, any one author or um, you know guru out, and this will sound like a shameless plug, but uh, I, you know, I really enjoyed my um, my experience at uh, Villanova in the uh, the MBA program because it was a systems thinking approach to business leadership, which I have to tell you I've you know utilized every day uh, since graduating that program, and you know Russ Acoff who uh, died a few years, years ago, who was a systems design leader at, uh, at Penn, uh, is really the founder of that kind of thinking. And Jamshid Karajadagi, who was uh, still a professor there in that program and, and one of Russ's um, uh, partners, uh, you know, was, the, was, the, uh, was our, 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 uh, our lead on that. And, and uh, I, I, I'm always going back to 
things that uh, John Sheet said or, or wrote or, or that I never met um, Dr. Acoff, but I'm, uh, you know, his teachings are, uh, uh, you know, a big part of, of, of my style, I think so. And I'm proud to say that. So, you know, I, I really think that you have to look at the entire system and you can never look at one problem uh, without the context. And, you know, that, that was an important uh, takeaway, I think, from that experience. Yeah, I, I am also a huge fan of that work, um, Peter Senge, and um, actually one of the things that I've done in my professional life is uh, teach people systems thinking and systems diagramming. So uh, we share that uh, that passion. I do think it's it's transformational uh, to how you approach organizational problems. So that's that's terrific. Yeah, and it's something that I don't know if you've found this, but I found it that there's very few people. There's actually many less people than you would imagine in in uh, in business, either in the nonprofit sector or the for-profit sector, that have um, familiarity with that at a high level. Usually, what they do, they do by instinct and not through, you know, really having studied the material that's out there. Do you find that? I do. I, I, I think that there's like a fit that a person has with this uh, style and with that model. That um, you know, I found myself as I went through the courses. Um, really corroborating a lot of my beliefs and practices, but then being able to you know, be more organized and refined in, in how you deliver those. Because I do think um, your instincts take you so far, uh, but to be able to um, you know, benefit from what someone else has experienced or written about and distill that into a, you know, a, a kind of a better delivery of your, of your own style is, is you know, you know, kind of an obligation for leaders to develop themselves that way. So let me come back and ask you one uh, one final question, which goes to your um, wonderful point about the centrality of helping people to live up to what they say, do what you say you are doing. If you could do that, that's a simple recipe, both for culture and for success, I think, um, in any organization. How do you manage in that context the difficult challenge? You know, Because I think a lot of times what organizations are doing is they're willingly trying to bite off more than they can chew and uh, trying to stretch. Every great innovator is trying to climb a mountain that looks unclimbable. So it always it always involves in some level saying that you're going to do something that you may well in the back of your mind feels impossible. <laughs> so how do you hold the tension between sort of uh, the integrity to be who you are, but also the willingness to stretch and to try to accomplish something really difficult? I, you know, maybe it starts with that that, that voice in the back of your head that says it's not possible. I, I think you have to be only willing to change what can and should be changed. And I think you have to be, um, you know, fearless in your evaluation of that. Um, having said that, I think that there's plenty of things that, you know, I've embarked on and that I will embark on that are going to look impossible maybe to the observer or to the folks that are in that system. But, you know, I have to believe that it's possible for for um, for us to start it, and I and I need to be able to enlist others in that vision. Um, I, it also, I think, has a lot to do with being truthful and candid with with reality. You know, we want what you want to be, and uh, and this is so this is replete throughout uh, uh, you know ubiquitous throughout uh, human services organizations where. The, the vision and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the promise that is made is just not what happens, you know, down the road. And that the people like me in the chief operating officer spot 
are not in touch with what happens uh, for the person who's you know side by side with the person we serve on on Saturday night in their home you know uh, uh, when the rubber kind of really hits the road and you, and you have to have a willingness to go to, to see that to hear about it to, to believe you know the story that you don't want to hear and see that as an opportunity to course correct in a way that gets you closer and closer and closer to keeping your promises uh, the thing that would anchor me and that I that I use probably a, or maybe even overuse if, it's, if that's possible is you know you ask the person who's delivering the service is this what you would want if, the, if it was your loved one is it, it would you be comfortable with someone who was you know dearly important to you receiving the services that we provide and you know how can you make an impact on that if your answer is an absolutely yes then what do we we're not done making our changes uh, so I think there has to be a, you know inclusion has to be a feedback loop and there has to be kind of a fearless willingness to to, to see um, uh, what actually happens and, and a commitment to changing it when it's not not what you want yeah exactly so that uh, courageous uh, commitment to get up every day and what is it I think it was uh, Confucius I, I someone I had been using this quote for a while but uh, before I learned that it was Confucius but said that uh, it's not how we fall but how we get up that that matters you know and that's uh, that's true um, for individuals and for organizations as well you know how you meet how you meet failure um, as a continuous improvement process that that gives your organization its character the problem is generally not with the idea. It's generally with the implementation of it. And if the implementation is hard, people will blame the idea. But really, it's how the team and all its members own the implementation of an idea and do it together that would make or break its success. That's terrific. Well, that's a terrific thought to, to leave us with. Uh, Chuck, I wanted to thank you so much for uh, spending uh, this time with us today on Innovate Podcast and and for your contribute your contribution to uh, you know um, HopeWorks Camden and for all the work you're doing in the region through through Bancroft. And um, I hope that we can catch up with you at a future interview and find out uh, more about your journey. Um, and wish you well. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.